And good afternoon, good afternoon, and welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be back with you in the Leslie Marshall Show family. Um, I cannot tell you how many things are happening in D.C., whether it's health care or the latest tweet from our president attacking yet another member of the press um, on really personally personal and ugly terms. But I am not going to talk about that today because I I think it is often important for us to continue conversations that we should be having um, and really talking about issues that don't always get top billing um, in this kind of fast-paced environment, but I think are so important. Um, I think also since the last time I've been here with the Leslie Marshall Show family, you may be happy to know I am now a co-host of a podcast at the the Center for American Progress called Thinking Cap. And many of our friends from this um, network and so many others have been friends of that show. And I hope you continue to support. Today, if please join in the conversation, go ahead and give us a ring at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L, Jawando. So in studio, Um, You know, the name of uh, our podcast is called Thinking Cap. And one of the reasons we named it so is because we think that it is time for critical thinking once again to happen in the United States of America. And here on the Leslie Marshall Show, you see the issues of the day happening quite often. And I'm excited because our next guest is going to help us explore um, and really talk about something that's near and dear to me personally, um, how interrelated racial love is saving America. I'm excited to be joined in studio with Cheryl D. Cashin. She is the author of Loving Interracial Intimacy and the Threat to White Supremacy. She's a professor of law at at Georgetown University, and you can find her on Twitter at Cheryl, S-H-E-R-Y-L-L-C-A-S-H-I-N. Cheryl, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you for having me. It is always great to have people in studio too because I think in studio is so much fun. Um, So earlier this month, I don't know if everyone knows, but it was the 50th anniversary of Loving v. Virginia, which was the seminal Supreme Court decision that overturned laws that remained in 16 states prohibiting interracial marriage. Coinciding with that anniversary, Cheryl's new book, Loving, um, Interracial Intimacy and the Threat to White Supremacy was released. And through her examination of American history, you really explore the legacy of America's interracial sin, but yet have opened up this conversation with a great deal of optimism. So let me just start with why did you decide to write this book? Well, I teach this case, Loving versus Virginia. Um, I teach a class called Race in American Law. And this case is the only case in U.S. history where the Supreme Court explicitly, or the first case where it explicitly says, this law is about white supremacy. And mm. they say the words and they say, you know, name the ideology that the Civil War and the 14th Amendment were supposed to have put to bed. Mm. And it just seemed to me with the 50th anniversary coming up, it was a good uh, refreshing perhaps vehicle mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. talking about how and why white supremacy was constructed. Mm-hmm. And you know, our kind of slow um, 
process of deconstructing it. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, so um, here I am talking to you about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the, this also kind of occurred at the same time. Uh, you had the motion picture release of Loving. Uh, Ruth Nega was nominated for, for an Oscar, Oscar for, right. the, for her depiction. Um, but, I, I, you know, I remember, and, and I've shared with our Leslie Marshall listeners before, so my f- so my husband's mother is white from Kansas, Hayes, Kansas. Like there's nothing in Hayes, Kansas. It's in the middle of Kansas. And my um, dearly beloved uh, and recently departed father-in-law is Nigerian. And they met when he came over from Nigeria to study at Fort Hayes State, which is the big college. And they met at a period of time in the 60s that I could not imagine being from Nigeria and she being from the small, almost exclusively white town um, in the middle of Kansas. And yet they developed this relationship that grew into friendship and marriage. And thank the Lord, because then I have my fine husband to thank them for. Um, but there was such, as we reflected on his life recently, um, at his uh, funeral, one of the things that we really thought about was the the courage that it took for them to engage even in that relationship. And I don't think we think about um, relationships and courage in that way and a bravery, but I think in so many ways, interracial relationships, um, it took a certain degree of risk to engage in that way, both with the law and just culturally and socially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I document this, that mm-hmm. um, since Loving was decided in 67, Loving strikes down the legal barriers to mm-hmm. interracial marriage, but the social barriers have come down. And I, I show in the, the third part of the book um you know, the, the attitudes about it. The majority of people are either uh, either support interracial couples or they say, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. They're neutral about it, like 91 percent, right? Mm-hmm. And when Richard and Mildred Loving's decision, you know, won this victory, only 4 percent of Americans supported interracial marriage. So attitudes are coming down. And the, my big point is that um, there are at least five forms of interracial intimacy beyond just marriage that are growing and spreading, I think right under our noses. And through these forms of intimacy, people are acquiring this quality I call cultural dexterity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, interracial marriage and cohabitation, dating, cross-racial adoption, and friendship, authentic interracial friendships. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth form is um, what... uh, virtual ties you can actually uh, develop an affectionate tie with a fictional character or say a mm-hmm. black president of the united mm-hmm. states which has been shown to, to, to reduce prejudice and mm-hmm. in, increase empathy and what i'm showing is that um people who have an intimate relationship with a, a person of a different uh, racial or ethnic experience, there's all this social science which shows that that enhances probability of them having empathy for that experience, mm. um, particularly if it's a friend is a black person, and it raises the possibility of people being angry about how black people are treated, and it also predicts a heightened probability that this person will engage in collective action mm. for racial and social justice. And what I'm saying is, um, I believe we're in the beginnings of what what 
Malcolm Gladwell in his book Tipping Point calls a geometric progression. Mm -hmm. To use a sports analogy, we may be in only like the first quarter, Mm -hmm. but I believe we are going to get to a point where a critical mass of people in this country, critical mass of whites, um, has acquired dexterity. And what I mean by dexterity, uh, it's the opposite of colorblindness. It's, it's seeing different experiences and accepting them. And when a critical mass of, of people, particularly white people, accepts in particular the loss of centrality of whiteness in this country, I believe there's possibility um, for what political scientists call a coalition of the ascendant. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. critical mm-hmm. mass of white people and center-left-leaning people of color whose populations are growing rapidly, Mm -hmm. um, politics could return to being functional again. (laughs) And I tell that story. That's what happened in California. So you, if you're just tuning in, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your host for this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. I'm in studio with Cheryl Cash, and she's the author of Loving Interracial Intimacy and the Threat to White Supremacy. So, Cheryl, we're, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I'd love for us to talk a little bit about California, mm-hmm. uh, what happened there, and also kind of what Donald Trump Trump's presidency, though, represents in the midst of this kind of conversation that you're putting forth. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Leslie Marshall, when the truth matters. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. And welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you. If you want to join in the conversation, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can find us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. I'm back in studio with Cheryl Cashin, author of Loving Interracial Intimacy and the Threat of White Supremacy and Professor of Law at Georgetown. University. University. So, Cheryl, before the break, you mentioned California. Right. Um, and um, at a time when there's a lot of criticism about um, elites on the coast of this country, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, your thoughts about California and, and this moment. Well, California in the late 80s was where the country is now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it went from majority white to gridlocked almost ungovernable uh, to majority minority to functional again in politics in a 20-year period. Um, and, you know, your listeners who are maybe, who are maybe old enough to remember, um, in the late 80s, Pete Wilson mm-hmm. ran for re-election to governor on the same kind of sort of nasty anti-immigrant divide-and-conquer politics, and he won with the landslide, and they had, um, you know, but what happened... Uh, and now California is the place a lot of liberals look to, mm-hmm. you know, um, for for leadership on, on mm-hmm. areas. And, and what happened? Um, a confluence of things. One, um, 
you had a growth of the culturally dexterous class of whites. The interracial intimacy and rates of interracial intimacy were much higher in California than other places. Mm. Um, and so, is whites, that location or what do you it, think it, it was? I, I, I'm, I think proximity. Mm-hmm. Wherever you, throughout American history, and I mm-hmm. feature this from time immemorial, when you have proximity of whites and people of color, you do get some mixing. And so, <laughs> there, the, the, there were populations of color growing very mm-hmm. fast, but also rates of, of residential segregation were declining. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, um, w- whites, as a general matter, were, were liberalizing as they were getting to know more people of color. Okay. And you also, at the same time, had a dying off of older whites who were less accepting of this, you know, majority minority state that was coming. And then you also had uh, rapidly growing uh, populations, particularly Latinos, that were radicalized by Pete Wilson's anti-immigrant politics and were registering to vote in greater numbers and also running for office. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, this confluence of forces um, led to um, what pol- uh, politicians call a coalition of the ascendant. Mm-hmm. And something that this coalition did that was very important is they put um, redistricting in the hands of a bipartisan citizens mm-hmm. commission. So they got rid of partisan and racial gerrymandering. And they also did this thing which politicos call a, a jungle primary. That's which right. is right. So, you know, the top two vote getters of e- either party have to run against each other. Those reforms encourage moderation. So in California, um, democracy has been unshackled from race baiting and gerrymandering. And the state since the late 80s has retreated from the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. They have um, raised, they're, they're raising taxes mm-hmm. to invest in education. You know, they're leading on climate change. Leading on paid sick leave, one of the first in the nation to adopt paid family medical leave. Automatic yep. restoration of, of, of former felons' mm-hmm. rights to vote. Sent two women consistently to the United States Senate. Decarceration, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, what, what, and, and so I, it's a depressing time for progressives mm-hmm. right we're it's it's a we're in a state of toxic polarity but what I'm saying is if you look at what happened in California I think the silver lining in Donald Trump's um, I still choke on the words the presidency right <laughs> um, is that he you know he has radicalized a lot of groups a lot of types of people who are um, offended by his his dog whistling mm-hmm. politics, and they are registering to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, they are mobilizing, um, and I also think he has accelerated seeing by a lot of whites who may have been sitting on the sidelines and said, you know, said I didn't realize it was this bad. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and th- now is not a time to be sitting on the sidelines. You know, it, it really right. encourages people to choose, you mm-hmm. know, and we, and this is the story, the overarching arc in my book, and I tell, I start with 1607, mm-hmm. and I'll say, someone re- recently told me that it's a page turner, mm-hmm. you know, people don't, mm-hmm. people don't expect it to, to go so quickly, but I start from 1607 forward in this, in this country, and from the beginning, from the founding, we've been in this dance between the ideology of white supremacy, which was constructed to prop up slavery, mm-hmm. Um, and Thomas Jefferson's egalitarian words in the Declaration of Independence. And 
every, through every generation, I feature this, there have been some people who cross lines to ally with people of color to fight for the fun, fundamental values. And I think we're, we're still in that we're dance today. There. Yeah. I wonder <clears throat> how you, you know, even as you mentioned the coalition of the ascendant, um, when we think about the election of Donald Trump, I think in many ways he is um, both responding to giving the words, the signals, the um, dog whistle politics, as they call it, um, to, I guess, the perceived those on the descending, on the decline. Absolutely. Um, and speaking to kind of white male angst in this country in a way that we, we, we hadn't really seen. And, you know, people often say, oh, it's white working class, but, but we're not really including white working class women because then we would have a different conversation about reproductive rights and mm-hmm. justice and health. But so it's really speaking to one particular individual. How, how does loving fit in with Donald Trump? In this moment. Okay. So whiteness was created in this country to solve a class conflict, you know, between wealthy elites and poor whites who couldn't own anybody. And, you know, in the first decades, in the 1600s, you had indentured white servants alongside with black slaves and and, and Indian slaves, and they got drunk together, Mm -hmm. fraternized, all this Mm -hmm. stuff. And, you know, when, when, when the elites transitioned to slavery, what did they do? They insert, they penalize interracial cooperation, fraternization, sex marriage. That's where the anti-miscegenation laws come from. Whiteness gets created, and there was no concept of whiteness in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. People didn't think of themselves mm-hmm. in racial terms. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it had a political function, this dog-whistling divide-and-conquer function that continues to this day and Donald Trump is just the latest iteration the of latest it iteration. just the latest and I really do think uh, I, I really believe this that we're in the last gasp of this kind of politics working because um, fewer people I believe with we'll each generation fall for it all right mm-hmm. Cheryl Cash an author of loving interracial intimacy please pick it up you can find her on Twitter, Cheryl Cashin. This is Michelle Jawanda and Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back talking healthcare after the break. Keep Leslie in your pocket. Go to lesliemarshallshow.com forward slash members. And welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Juwando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Many thanks to our guest last segment, Cheryl Cashin. Uh, please go pick up the book. I'm excited to check it out myself. Um, but you know, it would not be another day in Washington, D.C. if we weren't debating Healthcare in the United States of America. Does it seem like Groundhog Day? The answer would be yes, because the Supreme Court has ruled on this. We have had over 40 bills when the Obama um, uh, Obama presidency was taking place to repeal um, the uh, bill. We fought that back. As soon as they get in, the House tries. They fail. Then they try again under the cover of darkness. They put out a mean bill. They have a press in the Rose Garden and then they send it over to Mitch McConnell. They say they're going to do it before July 4th and they fail. And 
And that brings us to Friday. (laughs) Before July 4th. And um, I'm excited because uh, joining us in studio is uh, one of my uh, dear, one of the smartest people writing and thinking about these issues, um, Maura Kalsen. She is the Managing Director of Health Policy here at the Center for American Progress. You can find her on Twitter at Maura, M-A-U-R-A underscore Kalsen, C-A-L-S-Y-N. Um, and you can also find a lot of her content and information on the TrumpCareToolkit.org. Maura, no. welcome back. No, none no. of your content, but that's all right. We like that. We like the toolkit not, anyway. Not, not my content, but that's how people can really get to their senators, and I'll, I can talk about that in a little bit. And we'll do that. And also joining us in studio, it's the first time we're meeting, so I'm very happy to have you. Stacy Sanders, she is the uh, Federal Policy Director at the Medicare Rights Center. You can find her on Twitter at StacyJane1008. Ladies, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks for having us. Okay, so yesterday um, I found myself at yet another protect our care rally. Um, You know, if you're in Washington, D.C., people rallies are the new brunch um, because we feel like so many of our progressive values are under attack, but none more so than really health care. And um, we, we find ourselves again with it looks like a bill is dead. But, you know, I worked many years in the Senate. Mitch McConnell is nothing if dogged and persistent. Um. Where are we now? And Mara, I'll, I'll I'll just start with with you to tell us kind of where where what is the latest and where are we? Um, the latest is just as you said they they pulled the they were supposed to vote um, debate and vote on the bill this week and Mitch McConnell can't get to the magical 50 votes that they need. So what's happened now is they've sort of again retreated behind closed doors and um, Mitch McConnell is kind of probably in the midst of offering people all sorts of goodies. Um, and buyouts. Um, there was actually a report from a White House source today basically saying that the moderates would, quote, get bribes and get bought off. So there's probably all sorts of wheeling and dealing going on behind the scenes. And that's why I think it was really important that yesterday there was the massive rally um, and uh, a various doctor groups, especially the primary care doctors, all were up on the Hill lobbying. Planned Parenthood was there. There was just a ton of energy. A 24-hour prayer vigil just ended um, up there, and um, like Stacy uh, participated in a people's filibuster. So, what was really different, what's di- what feels different this time than with the House, is that we're not letting up the pressure. Even though they didn't vote this week, we still had a massive rally with you know over a thousand people. There was still doctors up on the hill. There was mm-hmm. still Planned Parenthood. So we need to really keep that energy going because they're not going to stop. So Stacy, you know, I, I think we've heard in the press um, 22 million would be left uninsured. Um, but we also have heard quite extensively about this almost $800 billion cut to Medicaid. Now, you spend a lot of your time thinking about Medicaid and Medicare, but I think that there's sometimes confusion. So could you share with our listeners what is what, and how would this bill impact both? Sure. 
Yes, and unfortunately, uh, we learned today in the news that our president even sometimes confuses uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Donald Trump doesn't know something? Oh, my goodness. Healthcare is difficult. <laughs> it's complicated. It's very complex. It's complex. Um, but, yes, Medicare and Medicaid um, are two very different programs, um, although they are connected. Medicare is for people who are over age 65 um, and for people who have disabilities and are collecting Social Security benefits. And Medicare covers many things. It covers hospital care. It covers doctor's visits. It covers prescription drugs. But it, it has gaps. So, for instance, it does not cover long-term care services that people are receiving in their home. If you have to go into a nursing home uh, on a long-term basis, Medicare does not cover that. But Medicaid does. Um, and many people, in fact, 11 million Americans have both Medicare and Medicaid. You have to have a very low income in order to qualify for Medicaid. Um, uh, but many middle-income families actually spend down all of their savings and their resources. You know, when they've spent $100,000 a year on a nursing home uh, out of their retirement, they depend on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And this bill, Trump Care, would significantly um, slash the Medicaid program in ways that really put that long-term care and nursing home care uh, at risk. Um, so that safety net for older adults um, that many people think is covered by Medicare is in fact covered by Medicaid and is at risk through this legislation. You know, um, I, I often, this issue always hits me personally in that my father-in-law, who recently passed away, um, engineer, worked his whole life, did service to this country, but got sick, came down with cancer, lost his job, ended up living, moving in with us, and towards the end of his life, uh, we had to rely on Medicaid. And I am so grateful. I lived in a state, Maryland, that had that expanded Medicaid expansion in the states for so who was eligible under what terms. Um, and in the last months of his life was able to live out a life of dignity in a beautiful home, uh, nursing home, a hospice facility um, with people who gave him around the clock care after we had extend, extended and finished and gone through savings and gone through as much as you as a family should have to to see the, a loved one that they have to um, see them go through that much pain but then towards the end of life being able to be in the center and having that treatment and I, and what strikes me about this bill and the callousness of it is how do these senators not have that own story in their lives like how are they so out of touch that they don't have a similar story. I mean, every single person I know has someone who's sick, whose parents have come down with cancer, who've had a young friend who's been diagnosed, who's had a child in the NICU. Um, and to just move forward with such a, um, uh, a mean spiritness about it, it just, it just strikes me as so odd and perverse. Yeah. Well, I think what Maura said is, is really important is unfortunately right now for um, the Senate, this is all about politics. Mm -hmm. This is all about horse trading and backroom deals and following through on campaign promises. Um, and so what's really important is that stories like yours break through all of that political back and forth. Um, you know, because unfortunately, you know, this really at this moment in time, it isn't about the policy and it isn't about people's lives. It's all about the politics. So that's why we have to keep the pressure on, as Maura said. And Maura, 
No. So, I mean, how, you know, you talked a little bit about Trump Care Toolkit. I think people have felt like we've been fighting, Mm -hmm. right? And so should we stop? Is it making a difference? And and do you think it it will stop the quote unquote, the moderates? I mean, you saw this really strong statement from Heller who who mentioned um, his concern around leaving these people uninsured. But then you saw like a 10 million ad buy against him trying to take him out right after. Um, Will our work as trying to stop this bill be successful with these individuals? I mean, that that's still unknown. I think uh, as as one person I was talking to about this said, I'd rather be in our shoes today than their shoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, every day mm-hmm. that they do not get to 50 is a victory. And, you know, in mid-November, I don't think any of us would have ever dared to have dreamed we'd be here. Um, having said that, it's it's still, you know, it's still... Mitch McConnell, who is wily, who has, you know, over 200 billion, about 200 billion dollars of, of money just sitting there waiting for him to be, you know, give away to whomever to try to butter them up to get to 50. And so it's really absolutely critical to stay engaged, stay involved, keep calling. If, you know, if you are in a town or a city where your senator is going to be this week at a 4th of July parade, go and you know show your support for their stance if they've been opposed to it so for example like in Maine where Susan Collins has actually made some very good statements and if you're in a state where the senator has been you know far more quiet you know voice your opposition to this law this law is cruel it's immoral it's just harmful and it is the biggest transfer of wealth from those in need to those who absolutely have no need of tax breaks in this country's history. So, you know, one of the questions that I think strikes me is we have this healthcare system that is so um, complex, as Donald Trump <laughs> has stated. And you do hear these stories of like Aetna getting out of particular states or Blue Cross, Blue Shield. Um, and I think even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, President Obama said, listen, this is a first step. This shouldn't be the last step. Um, if each of you had an opportunity to kind of rework some some measure of the ACA, where would you start with with your own fixes? So, Stacey, I'll start with you. Well, I think the important thing is um, is to deal with some of the affordability concerns for people who are paying very high premiums in the individual market. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know it is important to remember that there are some people who are paying premiums that are just too high for their incomes. It's it's squeezing them too much. So I would really want to focus on making those premiums more affordable. Um, And there are ways to do that, reasonable policies that um, don't have to do with dismantling uh, the marketplace or, um, you know, making premiums lower for younger people at the expense of older people, which is one of the things in Trump care. Um, uh, So ways to deal with affordability that don't fundamentally dismantle access to coverage for some people and fundamentally dismantle Medicaid, which really has nothing to do with the Affordable Care Act, but yet is really a signature piece of this bill. Maura, what would you do? Um, Very similar. I think the the key problem that people have um, is really it's I'm going to back up and say since the Affordable Care Act passed, basically if 
whatever problem people have had with their health insurance, they've blamed the Affordable Care Act. And right. 99% <laughs> of that is not the case. But the people who do actually, um, I think, would really benefit from being helped are those who purchase insurance on the individual market, what Stacy said. So that means the people who buy through the ACA's marketplaces, who buy di- who have to buy directly from there, um, from an insurer. Mm-hmm. And those people are paying high premiums, and because and they seem very very high because in part because they don't have any help paying for it. So mm. for example, Medicare is not paying for part of the premium, and um, your employer is not paying for it. So giving those people extra help paying their premiums would be a very important first step. And then also making sure that once you have the insurance, the deductibles aren't so high, that cost sharing is is better, you know, providing more services like preventive care for free, things like that. Um, but those are all really, there are, there are ways to fix that and there are ways to encourage that. And not repeal the bill. Exactly. <laughs> and and taking, you know, $400 billion worth of subsidies away from people is totally not the way to go. I'd also say, you know, people also forget what the pre-ACA world was. I mean, right. there were areas with extraordinarily high um, costs, especially in rural areas. And going back to that is not the way to fix any of these problems. Oh, so we're going to take a quick question. Um, Ishmael from Manassas, Virginia. Ishmael, uh, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Yes, greeting to you uh, and then greeting to you guys. Since you're a Supreme Court expert, I just wanted to know, you know, the last health care bill, the Supreme Court kind of played a big role. Um, how do you see, what role is it going to play regarding the new Republican health care? Can it be challenged by it? Supreme Court? Is there anything that we can do as far as, um, uh, I know the Supreme Court is very conservative, but can we use it to kind of reverse everything that's been changed? Um, you have another career as a Supreme Court litigation strategist. So one, so one <laughs> of the big things that we often think about and we talk about um, is should the Republicans succeed, this would be the first time in our history where you see a taking of a benefit that had been conferred on people and you're seeing the taking away of that right. Um, and I know there have already been kind of conversations for those um, who would be affected. The thing about um, taking pe- first a piece of litigation to the Supreme Court is there's this question of ripeness, so when you can actually bring the suit. So it hasn't happened yet, but I would argue that if they were successful and we're going to do everything we can to make them not be successful, um, you would have a decent argument to be made um, uh, from individuals who were receiving benefits underneath the ACA and no longer would be receiving those benefits, that there could be a, a possible claim there. But but we're not going to get there because we're going to keep the bill and we're going to keep on giving health care. So we, we are close to the end of time. But I do want to ask um, both of you, because you know our president, he he seems only to be able to communicate well on Twitter. Um, If the president was reading a tweet from each of you, what would you want it to say? So, Stacey, I'm going to start with you, because you have a very, very uh, great look on your face right now. (laughs) I think I would... um remind the president of his promise not to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security 
um, and ask him to keep it by rejecting this bill, this mean bill. That's right. Maura? I think I would remind him that the Senate, if anything, made the bill meaner. And mm. They're probably just, and they're probably making it meaner still. As so. we speak. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, ladies, I want to just thank both of you for the work that you do. I think there are millions of families like mine who appreciate what you do every single day. So we're going to keep the fight. You can check out MedicareRights.org, Trump Care Toolkit, Maura Calson, Stacey Sanders, Fighters. Thank you. And we'll be right back after the break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. And welcome back. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. It's Michelle Jawando taking you to the top of the four o'clock hour. I'm happy to be joined with Victoria Jones from Talk Media News. Victoria, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. So what is the latest on this health care bill? Well, Senate Republicans um, really want to get a new version of their Obamacare repeal done by Friday. That's their deadline, which they imposed on themselves. And then, of course, they all want to head home for the July 4th recess. And they need to get a new Congressional Budget Office for. So they're trying to all kinds of things to do it. And masses of deal-making and, and uh, scrambling and all kinds of things. One of the things they're now looking at, which is kind of intriguing, uh, although I don't know what, it's not going to bring Democrats on, I don't think, is keeping a Medicare tax increase from Obamacare that their initial bill would cut. And also, they're looking at keeping uh, a net investment tax that imposes a 3.8% charge on some investments by people that make more than 250000 a year, and then using that money to um, lower the burden on lower-income citizens um, and help them buy health care. That's what they're thinking of doing with those two things. They think that might help. That might bring it over. Now, you know, we couldn't finish the show without any update on this horrible Trump tweet on Mika. So, Victoria, share with our listeners some folks who may not be know what was the latest from uh, President 45. Yeah, well, this was early this morning, and basically this is what he said. I heard poorly rated at morning shows speak badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then how come low IQ crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me? She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. Oh, my goodness. I mean, what do you do with a president who tweets direct insults, misogynist, sexist language uh, to reporters? What What is one to do? I, I think nobody quite knows. Now, there's a new Quinnipiac poll out showing over 60 percent of Americans think he should stop tweeting from his personal account. That's a huge number of people. 
Well, Victoria, we'll have to wait and see. You, you never know what you're going to get. Like a box of chocolates. I feel like Forrest Gump again. Uh, Victoria Jones from Talk Media News. Again, thank you so much. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you. Until the next time, be with you again soon. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.